Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is probably the most commonly known cited verse in the entire Bible from non-believers and believers alike. Many people may know of the verse, but yet to capture the gravity that this is the narrative of us, of our world. This is the start of the story of all of us. And the reason why grasping that concept is so important is because in the story of all of us, God lays the plans for everything. For us, the world, the weather, time, everything. And why that's important is because if God is the ultimate source of everything, we should always consult the source for everything. God therefore becomes the concrete focal point upon which our entire lives are derived. So whether you're an atheist, a young believer, or a veteran believer, the fact remains that God has an answer because he was there before you were. In fact, before you were, he could say, I am. Now that may seem obvious to go to the source, but it would be surprising how often in contemporary society people neglect the source. I'll give you an example. In our house, my wife and I have a very complex water system engineering design. It is designed to remove every form of impurity in the water that we drink. A few months ago, it shut down. My first inclination was to go to the owner's manual because expertise in that field is not my field. My wife said, no, I want to see what's going on because she was an engineer before she was a physician. I said, fine, go ahead. So she fiddled with some screws. She rearranged some pipes. She's flipping gauges, and all the while, the problem wasn't fixed. And I said, Chanel, you are a pediatrician. There are no children underneath the sink. Please come out. And what I realized is that the more she worked at it, she was stabbing in the dark because she didn't know what she was dealing with. And as a result, as time went on, her suggestions became more and more costly. I went from needing a new water filter, to a new sink, to new pipes, and as a result, all the things she suggested may have worked, but the cost you would have paid would have been very, very high. So in the owner's manual, on the last line it said, if all of these things don't work, please call us. So I called the number, and I said, hey, this is our problem. And the man said, I know what's wrong. And I said, 
How do you know that? You're not here. You're not physically seeing what's going on. He said, I made it. I'm the one who built it. I'm the one who designed it. I know why it will work, and I also know why it won't work. Consider the source. Now, we all have an owner's manual for life, and that manual is the Bible, and that, and that manual starts in the beginning God. Stop. Consult the source. And in that source, what do we learn? Point number one. That out of nothing, God makes something for something. The root of the word created, as in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the Hebrew word bara. And it's a very special verb because it's only used as God with the subject. Because it specifically means to create something out of nothing. So God did not go to Home Depot. He did not order supplies on Amazon to build our universe. There was only God and out of nothing he made something. And as a result, it then becomes very, very clear to view the Bible as a love story. As God incessantly chasing after a creation that rejects him. Because out of nothing, he made something. Which means he knew us all when we were nothing. And he made us something. So he refuses to let creation alone. He's the business owner who knew what the business was when it was a small idea inside of his mind, who built it from the ground up. So when the building is burning, all of his employees are running away, and someone's threatening a hostile takeover, he says, I knew what this was when it was nothing. I can't say no. And in that divine plan, he not only makes us out of nothing, he gives us all a purpose. Because all things come together for good, for the glory of God. And with those pieces coming together, there is a whole which serves God's purposes. Which brings me to point number two. The whole interprets The whole interprets the part. In Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This line comes at the end of the six days of creation. In each day, God made a specific thing or set of things. For example, the earth, sea creatures, plants, and animals. And he said it was good. But then looking back on the total six-day creation of everything, he said it was very good. Meaning there is an aesthetic 
beauty and superior quality to everything as opposed to the part. So what does that mean for us in our everyday life? I'll give you an example. The Trinity is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we were to begin considering the parts separate from the whole, we would begin overemphasizing each one of the Godhead. For example, if you put too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit, you would overemphasize the gifts of the Spirit and think the extraordinary ought to be ordinary without recognizing the day-to-day regenerative process that the Holy Spirit works in us. If you were to overemphasize the perfect high priest who is Christ, you would overdo the mercifulness of God without considering his justice. On the contrary, if you were to consider only the Father, you would overemphasize his justice at the expense of his mercy. But in the whole interpreting the part, it is the Holy Spirit regenerating us day by day in the minutia of everyday life who can therefore make us more Christ-like. Christ forms the bridge between us and the Father, and in that totality, we have salvation. Each part taken by itself cannot save us, but all three working together, the whole interprets the part. Now that's how the whole interprets the part relates to God, but how does that relate to us? Let's turn to Genesis 1.26. text says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 2-7, and the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So what do these verses tell us? Two things. The Lord God formed us, breathed into us, and we're made in his image and likeness. Now, the Hebrew word for formed, yasar, Y-A-S-A-R, is a very important word because God formed humankind. He spoke the rest of creation into existence, but he formed you and I, which denotes a more intimate relationship with us as a potter molds clay. So he was in heaven and he spoke birds into existence, but he came down and molded us and shaped us to make us the pinnacle of creation. Now, why is that important? Because anyone who reads this passage, Genesis 2-7, would have a very, very hard time becoming depressed. Why? Because God, the God of the universe, came down and molded you. 
And he did that knowing exactly who he would be and all the bad things you would do. And he said, you know what? I still choose you. You are somebody because I am God and you are my creation. What do these verses also tell us? That we are the image bearers of God. Which essentially means God is a perfect illuminating light and we are like a mirror that reflects his perfection. In our mirror is not the exact image but a copy which we can bounce off of God. And our mirror is useless without something to reflect. He is the source of light. But here's the thing. You and I and everyone listening, we're all image bearers of God. And so is everyone else. So take a moment and think about the person in your life who annoys you the most. Guess what? They are image bearers of God. If you meet an atheist on the street who says, I hate Jesus, guess what? They are image bearers of God. If you're driving on the highway and you refuse to let cars over in the right lane, guess what? You are denying drivers who are image bearers of God. If you see someone on the street who looks funny and smells funny, guess what? They are image bearers of God. And guess what? Because the whole interprets the part, if you were to make the mistake of thinking the part interprets the whole and that you're better than someone else, you have now become a Pharisee, thinking your created self is better than everyone else. And there is one group of people that Christ persistently went after, the Pharisees. So ask yourself, how well are you reflecting God's image? If Jesus knocked on your door and he asked you, how well are you reflecting my image? Could you affirmatively say, very well, Lord? Because in that reflection, we derive our identity, who we are. Because if we're reflecting well, we're going to act as if. But sometimes, our mirrors are cloudy. They get dirty. Sometimes the mirrors get broken and shattered, and we can no longer see the light being reflected. Sometimes we put a sheet over the mirror so light can no longer get through. And here's the thing. In contemporary society, there are many outlets for people to supposedly get their mirrors fixed. But who made the mirror? God did. So we may have plastic surgery because we need a new image. We may get a life coach. We may do all these funny things, but we never looked at our owner's manual and said, hey, God, can you please fix me? And God will say, I know what's wrong. I can make it right. Point number three. Position, permission, prohibition. Say that again. Position, permission, prohibition. 
In other words, what your job is, what you can do, what you can't do. So here's the setup. God, out of his own free will, creates Adam and Eve. It is a free and voluntary act. God doesn't need anything, but he still places them in the Garden of Eden. And Garden of e- the Garden of Eden isn't a roughshod job. It's not a one-star accommodation. It is a ten-star accommodation. It is paradise. There is no scarcity. There is no need. There is no want. There is love and harmony. It is beautiful. And God, in giving them that, didn't have to. But he still gave them privileges and gifts because he's a loving God. And so in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Number one, position. Cultivate it and keep it. Permission. Number two, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Prohibition, number three. From any, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So in any situation we find ourselves in life, we are living in God's creation. It is God's free gift. Nothing is generated by ourselves. It is because of him only. And in giving us that gift, we are given a job, permission, and things not to do. A position could be your job title. It could be a particular geographic place that you're in. It could be a label that you carry, as in father or sister. It could be a calling that you have to serve others inside the church. And you ought to Play your position well, because if you do, you'll be promoted. If there's any disruption in the concept of your position, that leads to pride. And God can always change your position. The devil once had the position of being the worship leader in heaven. He let that get to his head, so God gave him a new position in less favorable circumstances. David began as a shepherd, and because he executed his responsibilities as a shepherd well, he then became the king of Israel. But he never allowed that to get to his head because he was a responsible shepherd first and was cultivating himself to be a king. And a position gives way to permission which is essentially a command of liberty. A disruption of permission leads to exploitation, which means if you're a pastor of a church, 
you have permission to lead people. Your permission is not to exploit others and to promote false doctrine. If you're a man, you may be ordained head of your household, but guess what? The whole interprets the part, so in the relationship with your wife, you ought never to abuse her, because who made her as well? God did. And if you're a Christian, it is your responsibility to preach the good news of others, which means we are not to exploit other non-believers who have yet to come to Christ. Because, of course, disruption of the permission leads to abuse. Prohibition. These are God's safeguards for your life. And disruption of prohibition leads to rebellion. Because when you begin considering prohibition out of the context of the whole, you begin saying, wait a minute, God is holding back on me. I deserve better than this. Why can't I do it? All the while not realizing everything in its whole was given to you by God. I'm going to give you an example. My son is now 18 months old. He has a fabulous position in life. He gets to live the life of a toddler all day long. He sleeps for 14 hours a day. His job title says he's supposed to take naps. People are fawning all over him everywhere he goes. And women just love him. Women just stop in the street. It's just ridiculous. And with that, he has many permissions. He can throw food on the floor. He can use the bathroom on himself. He can slap his father. He can slap his mother. The toddlers do. Except when he's at his grandparents' house. There, it is total permission and no prohibition. Now, my wife and I decided to have Nigel because two people who were in love decided to make a baby out of love in order to love. And the house in which he lives is a free gift. And if you walked into our house, you would think adults must not live here. It must be only a child. And in the house that we freely provided, there are certain specific prohibitions. My son, for example, loves to try and put things in the outlet, but we always tell him no, because we know that if he does do that, he's going to hurt himself. And my name is Elijah. His name is Elijah. So my loving intent always is engineered around the fact that he has to be better than me in everything. So I install prohibitions in order to protect him and to raise him up to be better. And I try for him not to fall into mistakes that I did when I was younger. Now, what if one day a serpent came up to Nigel and said, hey, Nigel, what if your father really doesn't love you? 
what if I told you that if you put something metal into an electrical socket, you'll know what it feels like to be shocked just like your father? What if I told you that that big guy with the beard and the pretty lady, they don't really care for your interests that much. They're holding you back. Now, all of us would say, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But guess what? That happens every day, all the time. And God is looking down, saying, I gave you all of this, and you allow a serpent to come and disrupt the harmony that I have made. Which is exactly what happens, Genesis 3.1 where the serpent, I'm going to paraphrase, came up to Eve and said, did God really say? Which is one of the most dangerous questions in the entire Bible. And what is entailed in this question? The serpent was attacking her position. You're better than this. It was attacking her permission. You can do more. And it was attacking her prohibition. You should be able to do that and not die. And here's the thing. When the serpent asked that question, he wasn't offering anything of value. God already put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, here, this is a free gift, now take care of it. The serpent didn't offer anything exchange. All he did was offer a difference of perspective. And ironically, all of his tactics were God-dependent. He was in God's garden, talking to God's creation, attacking the threat of God's fruit. In many ways, the serpent was like a very, very clever politician, because instead of offering any original ideas of his own, he attacked the other person who was God. And here's the thing. When did the serpent ask Eve this question? On day number seven, when God was resting, which means the serpent couldn't have acted when God was busy creating anything which is a lesson for our lives, meaning that when God is actively working on us and changing our life, there is no room for the enemy to enter. And by the way, as a side note, it had to be the fruit of the tree. It couldn't have been the pool or the meat rack of knowledge of good and evil or the vegetable. Because in the fruit are seeds. And the act itself may have been very, very innocent. After all, Eve didn't murder anyone. She didn't take anyone's land. But in that simple act was a diversion away from God and towards the self. And just as a seed can plant an innumerable number of trees which can each plant more fruit, which can lead to more and more sin, that simple act symbolically had to come from the fruit of the tree. 
And here's the greatest trick of all. What the serpent offered Eve was the illusion of choice. Which brings me to my last point. With God, slavery equals freedom. One more time. With God, slavery equals freedom. In Western society, we live under the delusion that choice makes us free. And the more options that we have, therefore gives us more power. But here's the irony. When you have choices which are divergent from God, and those choices invariably lead to death, what do our choices really mean? If Eve, and subsequently Adam, had their eyes completely on God, they would have told the serpent, yes, God really did say. And being a slave to God, or in bondage to God, means you are free not to sin. And you are free only to do good. The result is that they live in paradise forever in complete and total harmony. Now that they have choice, they're given the illusion there's something greater. And as a result, the prohibitions meant to be a safeguard and a protection mechanism now become a limitation. And a question mark is now hung on all of God's promises. And with those choices, we are given an endless array of options which ultimately lead to death because they are anti-God. Chapter 3 subsequently says that the serpent was doomed to feed off of dust the rest of his life. The dust is what we were before God breathed into us, which means the serpent feeds off nothingness. So just as God from nothing made something, the serpent takes something and turns it into nothing. So the question I have for everyone is, why ought we to chase after dust? Why should we believe the lie that choice actually makes us better or stronger? We are all created and built to be God's image bearers. So we ought to clean up our mirrors and ensure that we are the proper image bearers of the risen Christ. Now, seven days from now, we're going to celebrate the greatest event in the history of existence, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ never died for any of us to be in bondage. He died to set us free. And the only reason why a serpent would ever tempt us is because he perhaps has a vision of what we can be without sin of the power and glory and illumination we can bring to the world being perfect image bearers of Christ. There's a beautiful sound that I can hear, the sound of chains being broken. People no longer willing 
to bow down and submit themselves to sin. And as the choir gets ready, an armor being, uh, army being raised up. Fearless men and women who realize the glory Christ has given to us all in his atoning blood and setting us free. So if you are an image bearer of Christ and no longer want to waver between two opinions, I ask you all to clean up your mirrors and pull on the man who set you free, Jesus Christ. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.